It is shocking that we ever get anything done around here. Um, by the way, there's a drive game coming up for the youth group. Invite somebody along. Uh, hey, everybody. We're, uh, we're, we're in part four of a four-part series called Rooted uh, this morning. So we're finishing it off today. And just a quick recap of where we've gone so far. We're taking a look at those four different soils that God uses to grow deep faith in our lives. The first soil we took a look at about a month ago, and we said it's time that deep roots take an incredible amount of time, probably more than like hours and days, probably something more like, uh, more like years and even decades. The next one we looked at is the intimacy with God is the second soil, that David defeated Goliath not on the battlefield in the valley. David defeated Goliath in the shepherd's field, growing his reliance and his confidence in God. The third soil we took a look at last week, and we saw it as serving, that, that, um, that God grows us in our efforts and our serving other people and serving, giving, uh, giving back out of extreme gratitude to God, serving, even like when David, we would want to be somewhere else, maybe even anywhere else serving. This morning, we take a look at the, the fourth soil as we finish off the series, and I just want to be honest with you and say this is probably one of the, more, uh, difficult, one of the most difficult soils to look at is how God grows our faith. We take a look at the soil of community, the soil of community when it's hard, maybe even especially when it's hard, when there's some, some conflict in our life and, and in our smaller communities. But before we jump into the story, I want to quick first just wreck whatever credibility that I have to talk about this topic and share with you in a seminary pastor training school, um, you, you go in and you got to take this battery of psychological tests and you, you know, written tests and then you do like interviews with a psychologist and they find all the, you know, things that are wrong with you and everything. And then they give you a list of um, uh, all these different blind spots in your life, all these different areas that you have to work on. And then... And then what we do is uh, you read through it together with an advisor. One of them for me was the area of, uh, of assertiveness training. As some of you, so you go into a class and you learn how to kind of advocate for yourself and for your own ideas. Some of you who know me are like, I think it worked a little too well. <laughs> but there was a time, there was a season in life when it's like this is you know, something I really needed to work on. And so one of my friends at the time, he uh, took it upon himself to try to help me learn to be more assertive. So we'd go out for dinner together, like he and his wife and me and my wife, Kristen, and we're kind of out there and the food comes and I would say something like many of you have probably said before, like, you know, it's, it's cold or food is terrible or something. You know, it's just you mutter it under your breath and you just quietly resolve never to go to that place again, like a normal person. Except for he excuses himself, I mean, I gotta go use the restroom or something, but really he was going to talk to a man Manager to send that person, oh, to send the manager over to our table to find out what was wrong. Right? Who needs enemies when you have friends like that? <laughs> Casey, I hope you're listening right now. Uh, <sighs> Community is extremely difficult, especially when there's tension, especially when there's something, something there that causes like this rift or this disagreement between you. Like, I am aware that we're coming up to Thanksgiving weekend, and some of you are going to places that you just do not want to be, and you're going to have conversations that you don't want to have. And so everything inside of you, if you're anything like me, just, just wants to run away, just wants to dis, dis, disregard it and, and get rid of it, just brush it under the rug, under the carpet, just never talk about it again. See, this is, this is what I'm saying. We have... We have people in our lives 
that are like this, this board, right? It's a friends, family members, maybe neighbors or colleagues. And, and for a long time, you're just, you're with them and you're talking and openly about them. And like the grain unbroken on a board, it's this like exquisite and beautiful kind of pattern of like flow of give and of take. And, and you have this conversation marked by openness and honesty and you can be real and you can be vulnerable with somebody. And it's this sort of really cool and beautiful thing. Until something comes along, something happens, and like, it gets broken. Some of you, this happened at the election. <laughs> and, and there's something that like wrecks the relationship that you have with another human being. There's this division within this board, and you think like, how does this ever go together again? Now, when you look at this relationship, now broken and severed, there's, if you're honest with yourself, there's probably part of you that is going to look at this thing and going, it's jagged, it's ugly. You know, you're looking at it going, like, I could get like splinters on this thing. You're looking at the board, there's fragments of a relationship going, it is at best deeply and profoundly uncomfortable. And looking at this board going, everything inside of me wants to throw it away and, and just get rid of it and be done with it. I understand that instinct. But if you do, like if you give in to that and disregard and surround yourself with maybe new friends or with a family that like wall up and not go there, if you do, I think that you will miss out on one of the biggest, one of the most powerful soils that God uses to grow your faith, and that is growing faith in the soil of community, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. Let me share a story with you. A uh, story comes from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24. If you have Bibles that are in front of you, can we get the house lights um, to come up so we can read in the Bible? Bibles in the chair in front of you, and uh, take a look at it. There's, uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible at home or if you uh, would you know, like ours better, go ahead and take it home with you. We're going to get into the story. It's also going to be on the screen on the words behind me. First um, Samuel chapter 24, continuing and finishing off this life of David, we see this. It says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David as his men uh, near and his men uh, near Craig, the crags of the wild goats. Just kind of pause on there. Last week we took a look. Remember, um, remember Saul as king, David as a future king, as anointed king. Saul tries to kill David not once but twice. <laughs> tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. And not once but twice, David hangs in there and serves as king because his king happens to be the anointed one of God over Israel. And who is David to mess with that? David hangs in there until the third assassination attempt on his life. And then David realizes, I can perhaps serve my king from a distance better than I can serve him, playing music for him right here. So David flees and runs away. Saul is so infuriated. He's so angry. It's like he lets the kingdom wither on the vine while he ignores the problems within in his like single-minded pursuit of getting revenge on David for the sense of, of wrongdoing. 
And he, he comes back from the battle of the Philistines, and he happens to have an army with him. He catches a rumor that David is hanging out at a place called En Gedi. This is going to be a fancy resort town in David and Solomon's era. But now this is a, an oasis in the wilderness. It's a place where, where fresh water spring comes up from the ground. And it's just this lush green spot in the middle of a wilderness. If you can survive the trek through the wilderness and make it to En Gedi without getting lost, there's restoration and there is rest there. Saul, with his army of 3,000 men, decided to venture through the wilderness because, because they heard a rumor that David is hanging out in the caves of En Gedi in the wilderness. He comes through, and this is what happens next. Okay, verse 3, he's coming in 110 degree heat. Uh, he came, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. And a cave was there, and Saul went in <laughs> to relieve himself. Not that. Get your mind out of the gutter. Uh, <laughs> It's 110 degrees in the heat in midday. There was a cultural uh, kind of norm of in the middle of the day, kind of maybe noon to one o'clock when the sun is beating down and it's the hottest and it doesn't matter if it's a dry heat or not because it's 110. You go in and you take a rest along the way just to get out of the oppressive heat in the sunlight. If you're walking around in a place and there's caves all around, Saul as the king is looking inside of these caves and he's, you know, it's cool and it's dark, it's a perfect spot for a rest. Saul goes in to relieve himself, meaning to take a nap. He might take an armor bearer or something with him, a personal attendant. He goes in and he rests in the cave, unknowing to him. I mean, this is an incredible story. You can't almost make this stuff up. It says, uh, David and his men, next line, were far back in the cave. I mean, how wild is this, right? The, the very cave, I mean, there's like hundreds of caves around the area, maybe even thousands, in, in this cave. Of all of them, they Saul happens to pick the very one that David and his men are like camped out in and hiding out in, in the far back of the cave. And they know, right, because they're way, they've been in the cave for a long time. And they're looking at this thing with like these wide eyes that are already adjusted to the darkness. And they can see this tall guy with this bright armor comes in with a personal assistant. And he's got the, the colors of the, of the royal robe on him. They know who it is. Saul comes in with his personal attendant. His eyes are still kind of light from the daylight outside. He can't see more than a few feet in front of him. He goes in just where it's, you know, nice and dark and nice and cold, and he lies down, and he takes a nap. I mean, David, and he's got 400 men with him in this cave. They're going, what luck? Maybe it's more than luck. This is incredible. This is our chance. This is our chance to address the rift in the relationship that is Saul's assassination attempt on David, not once or twice, but three times. This is our chance to finally end this once and for all. Verse 4, the men point out, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Does anybody have that friend that happens to like hyper-spiritualize everything? right? We're like any kind of conflict or any, a football game, you know, Michigan versus Ohio State. It isn't a football game. It's like a battle of good versus evil. That one actually holds up. I get it. That one makes sense. So, right? No, but, but like these friends, they can't just look on this as an opportunity. They, like the logic, the line of thinking goes, listen, if, 
if God didn't want us to sin, like he wouldn't make it so easy. Like I, I think that something's wrong with that line. I mean, tempting as it is, but hopefully now, you know, in the course of the series, we take a look at these soils and everything, and it's, it's never an easy thing to grow deep faith. It always, it doesn't take minutes, it takes decades. You know, it's never as easy as what you hope for it to be. So just because it's easy doesn't mean it's like God's sanction and God uh, and ordained and just totally okay with him. But, but nevertheless, all of the men say, look, this is our chance. David, David, go, go, do it. And so David, sneaking up on the king, he starts to listen to the voice in his head saying, now's the chance. Next line it says, David, David crept up unnoticed and and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, on the one hand, we think like a couple of things going on. On the one hand, we're like, he, he has his sword. You know, maybe it's the sword from Goliath's own hand that he's been carrying around on the battlefield this whole time. You know, and he did, takes the sword out and he's just about ready to, to like plummet it into the heart of this enemy who tried to kill him countless times, King Saul. You know, and finally end this thing and take the throne and just be done with it, his way, his terms. Just about as he's ready to do that, it's almost like he looks into the eyes of the king, Saul, and, and he sees sleeping there a man who's, who's sleeping just like he did in the days when David was a kid and he would come to the king and play his harp and, and put his mind at ease and he would, he would slip, slip into a deep rest. David looks down at the man sleeping and he doesn't just see an enemy who is vulnerable. What David sees when he looks at this king is God's own anointed king, of which there are only two on the planet. And David is the other one. So if anybody had his realization about the weight that was on Saul, David got it. And so he plunges his knife down, not into the heart of Saul like we almost want him to do, but he plunges his knife down into the dirt and he cuts off just a piece of the king's robe, which in and of itself had huge significance. The people in the day, they wore, as I mentioned, as he came in, kings had his identifying markers. They was multicolored, bright. They just surrounded themselves with it so that everybody knew from all around, even from a distance, this man is a king. As Saul is walking around. That's what the robe meant. Number one, he's king. And the second one is that there was this biblical understanding in the time that, that the Jewish people, men, men were supposed to wear and surround themselves with this shawl with tassels on the end of it. There are, there are written accounts that say that people even in a pinch could use the tassels at the end of their garments as, a, as an identifying marker because they were tied so uniquely. They'd roll them in the clay tablets and they would be able to identify themselves almost as an act of, of credit to come back and pay for it. Uh, contrary, or secondary to that, uh, there was also this uh, contradiction that would develop that there would be uh, 613 tied-off tassels on the end of somebody's rope to account for 613 of the do's and do nots in the Old Testament. The, the robe was like, it was identifying who you were. In Saul's case, you were king. And the robe also signifies your connection and your, your covering by God's very presence. And David cut that off. Right? I just, I want us to see Saul tried to kill David. There's no getting around that. 
we can see the damage that Saul inflicted on his successor. But I also want us to see that David wasn't completely out of the wrong as well. I also want us to see that, that in light of that, when David had his chance, he may have not killed the king, but he arguably did something even worse. He cut the king off from his kingship, something that wasn't his to do, it was given by God, and it would be taken by God. And he also cut the king off from his relationship, his very presence of God. That's what it meant to cut off the rope. And as David is reflecting on that in, my, in his mind, he may not have given in to the temptation of ending the conflict with Saul, but he certainly gave in to something because this is, this is what happens next. In verse 5, he says, Afterward, David was, was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing for my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David, it's a key phrase here, sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, the reason why I wanted you to just notice uh, David sharply rebuked his men is that there is so, so incredibly much like wordplay on the language that is used here. You you'd almost might think that like this whole thing was divinely inspired. <laughs> um, the word sharp, I thought it was funny. Um, biblical infallibility is always a good you know, topic for humor. Um, there, the word sharply rebuked literally means uh, like, like tearing apart, right? So you can kind of see where this goes. That David teared apart his men for what he did, for, for what they were saying uh, for him to do, like doing more. Which is just kind of this interesting phrase because David himself tore apart the robe and he was conscious stricken by it. And it gets an even deeper layer to it when we see that the reason why David was anointed in the first place is because God rejected Saul. What happened in the story there? Well, Saul was kind of going about his business and he was you know, extremely disobedient. And the prophet Samuel, way back in the beginning of the year, comes up to Saul and says, Saul, you know, you did this thing. Saul is absolutely in a rejecting of that idea. I'm not going to hear any other opinions. Samuel turns around to leave. Saul grabs onto his robe and, guess what, tears it apart. Samuel like, turns around and says, whoa, what did you just do? Remember the significance of the robe. What did you just do to me? Saul refuses to bend. He refuses to give in or acknowledge in any way that he is wrong. And Samuel pronounces the, God's judgment on Saul. He says, listen, a time is coming. And even right now, God is preparing to anoint someone else as king. Someone's going to be King Saul, and it's not you, and it's not going to be in your family. You are done. Why? He tore open the robe, the presence of God on Samuel's life. Saul thought he was better. Saul thought he could do that to a prophet that he could be the one to judge whose God who's God's presence is on and not. So, so now we see um, David, who does the same thing to Saul. And then David just lights into, just tears apart his man for even suggesting that they do more. This whole thing like forms this intricate web. If you're like me, if you follow this story, you're kind of in the back of your mind going, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that Saul is guilty of the exact same thing as David is guilty of, tearing the rope, signifying like this broken relationship of God, like it's yours to be able to call that. 
Why was it that Saul got in all this hot water and had the kingdom like torn away from him, pun intended, and why, why was it that David could just go on and just become the king over Israel? The answer is, is probably key to Christian faith, and I'm not exaggerating on that. The answer isn't in what you do or don't do. The answer is what happens next. Right? Because some of you are approaching this faith journey of trying to be the ones to say, listen, I'm going to live my life as perfectly as possible. And the messages that you get is like, is like that's what it means to follow Jesus, is living this perfect life. That's not what the message of Christianity is all about. That's what Saul demonstrates. It is impossible to live the Christian life. What makes a difference is after you fall, what happens? What do you do with it? Saul dug in that much more and refused to cave, refused to bend. David, after he does this, he is conscious, stricken, guilt-ridden. He knows that he made a mistake and that he errs. And he does something to fix it. I love that David tears into his men the same way he tore into because sometimes you're going to be the one doing the damage. Sometimes someone else is going to be the one to do the damage to you. And sometimes you're just going to be a third party watching these two go at it. And you're going to need to say something. You're going to have to make a conscious decision about what kind of friend you're going to be, about what kind of Christian you're going to be. Are you going to allow this thing to happen to two other people? Or are you going to go in, as Jesus said, and be a peacemaker? David, though, is conscious stricken on this whole thing and decides he's going to do something about it. This is what happens, verse 8. Then David, he went out of the cave and he called out to Saul. And he goes, may the Lord, or he said, my Lord, the king, right, lowercase, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and, and prostrated himself like arms spread open himself with his face to the ground. God, this makes no earthly sense at all. It's just nothing in the world would indicate that this is a good idea. Because <laughs> this, is, this, this is not how the world works. Exactly. That's kind of the point. What I love in this story is about how David goes up and he goes, you know, I had the opportunity to end this, to kill you, to be done with this. I could have discarded this whole thing a long time ago like I wanted to, but I didn't. I stuck in there. And you know what? I have to do something, something incredibly difficult. Is I have to go to my own part and I have to say, and I have to own the rift that I contributed to, that I helped create. And I have to do that in a way that isn't this power grab, top down thing. But I have to go and I have to make myself vulnerable. I have to go and lie down, face down in front of you. And David says, Saul, if you choose to kill me, this is what his actions say. If you choose to kill me, so be it. I'm going to risk that. I'm going to risk all of God's promises in my life. I'm going to risk my very faith. I'm going to risk everything on being real and vulnerable with you. He lies down in front of Saul and says, verse 11, See, my father, figurative, not literal, Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but, but, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, 
but you are hunting me down to take my life. David, lying in a position where Saul could now end it to him, and we know that Saul tried too many times. He lays it down in a way to say, we're going to bury this thing right here, and it's not with one of us getting buried in the ground, but we're going to end this conflict. If you want to end it, you totally can. I love what David is, uh, is attempting to do here. I, uh, what David is attempting to do is like build this thing back together again, like fix this back together again. And this is, this is the insane part of the whole thing. Boards that get broken, uh, they can be repaired. <laughs> As some of you who are uh, used to woodworking know that you can repair a board with putting some glue on it, right? That wood glue, clamp it together. If you do it right, you, you know, dovetail things together and make the right joints. But there's a possibility that even after a board is broken, it can be put together in a way that is stronger and more secure than it ever was before. I mean, it's, you have to understand because like, we're not talking about just woodworking here. We're talking about families. We're talking about friendships. We're talking about lifelong relationships that go deeper than the shallow point we want to keep them. They go into some really nasty, tough, ugly areas that God can put back together in a way that is stronger than it ever was before so that when you get to the point of having another rift... It doesn't break in the area that it was broken in and glued back together because that area is now not the weakest part of the board, but it's the strongest part of the board as it's put back together. This is what it means to take these fragments of a broken community that's extraordinarily difficult and hand them over to God and say, and say not my will, but your will be done. You want to grow me. You want to stretch us in this relationship, in this community, and there is deep profound division within us. But God, in you, anything is possible. So help. And friends, this is key to this entire thing. What David does next is he does not try to fix it on his own. He says this in verse 12. May the Lord, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David takes all of the division, all of the, all of the brokenness, and he doesn't hang on to it, and he doesn't let it fester in his soul, but he voices it, and he hands it over to God where it belongs. And he says, God, God, this is your thing. This is you. God, we need your help with this to put it all back together again. You know, this is David. This is David. He was not a perfect person. But David, what made him have a heart after God's own heart, the Bible says, uh, David, what made his heart beat in rhythm, in lockstep with God's own heart, and when ours does too, it's not that we're perfect people, but we own the wrongs and we hand it over back to God. David, later on in his life, when he's king, uh, he's away from the battlefield, which is wrong in and of itself, but he's looking over the balcony and he sees someone. He sees a lady. He knows that she's married. He invites her anyway. They sleep together. She is pregnant, gets pregnant. Uh, he knows what's going on. Uh, Uriah, his name is. David has him murdered on a battlefield. 
to kind of cover the whole thing up, takes her as his wife, kind of pretends like this whole thing was above board. He thinks he got away with it before Nathan, Samuel, the prophet's successor, comes by, comes by David and says, um, David, I know. David, God knows what happened. After Nathan calls David out on this, you know, he doesn't hang on to it. Like a wound, he doesn't let it fester. David does something. He, he sits down and he pens Psalm 55. And he says, God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing, according to your steadfast love. And he gets down to, to verse 17, Psalm 55, 17. And David says that, that my sacrifice is a broken spirit. David says, my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise or you will not reject. What David understands is not that he is going to lead a perfect life, that we will not lead perfect lives, but what David understands is the reaction to that, is owning what happened, is owning the mistake and handing it up to God and saying, please help. Please, I need it. I need you in my life. I cannot do this on my own. He's still lying face down before Saul. What he doesn't know is what Saul's reaction is going to be. And so in verse 16, it says, When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David? My son? A phrase he had not heard in a long time. And he wept aloud. And he said, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did for me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. Restoration. Everything is not better between them. Don't get me wrong. But given the opportunity to live in this world without each other, they both decided to live with each other in the world. I mean, it's uh, nothing short of a miracle, wouldn't you say? Friends, listen to me. What makes this story exceptional is not, because, it's not that, that David was such an incredible king. I mean, in, in most communities, he is long forgotten about. What makes this story exceptional wasn't the kingdom that he built long forgotten about outside of the Bible. What makes this story completely exceptional was the time and whatever that he lived in. Israel was a, was a bearably a blip on the map of geographic powers, even in David's time, the height of the kingdom. What makes this story so incredible isn't that it happened, but that it happens. What I'm saying is that, is that God sits down and God pens this story together. Because for God and for us, this is more than just a blip of a, kind of moving some pieces around in one kingdom and one part of the world a very, very long time ago that most people have forgotten about by now. What makes this story powerful to God isn't that it did happen, but, but that this story somehow represents a microcosm of how God himself is relating to his people. When he sets up this world and this universe and puts it in order and just watches it and guides it along. And just this incredible, and these people inside of it who, who live and go about their day and work, and then they reject him. 
and they harm him, and they create this, this rift between the two of them. And God looks at this and saying, I don't, this is not me. You rejected me. You broke us apart. And for God to do the thing that, that we so badly want to do is just to take these pieces and throw it, throw it away and start over again. Maybe some of you had people in your lives, in your relationships, that you, friendships, that as soon as it got tough, it's like, I don't need this anymore. I am done. If it's family, building up these walls around you just so you don't have to get hurt again. Like there's, there's a part of it that just wants to scrap the whole thing all together. But, but friends, in this story, we peer not just into an obscure monarchy a long time ago, but we peer into the very heart of God when he says, I will not throw away the creation that I once made. It's better than that. I can fix this. And God, you know, in his own way, like using the glue and putting it, dovetailing it all together, he goes, listen, there is a way that we can make this thing stronger now than it was even before it was broken. There's a way that we can go about making this so that, so that it's, it's better and it has more like structural integrity than it ever had before. That, that in fact, a, a creation that, that had the possibility of spoiling and, and going rotten, but, but then God ch choosing to save it again and winning it back is somehow better than a creation that could never go wrong in the first place. And God's saying, the way to do that, the glue that is going to hold this creation together and these people together is not going to be found in, in one one military commander slaying another one in a cave somewhere. No, no, no. The way that this is going to be put back together is not through violence, but the way it is through love and sacrifice. I mean, you just see in the story as David lies face down, vulnerable, knowing that they could kill him, and they might very well kill him. And he could have ended this a long time ago. We see in this story, and that's something that did happen, but that does happen as Christ later lays himself before the evil in this world and say, not my will be done, but yours. I could crinkle this creation up and throw it away with a snap, a snap of my fingers, but I won't because I love you. And you know what? I think you're worth saving. I think you're worth saving not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And if you just have faith in me, if you just believe the narrative that I'm good and I'm gracious and that I'm loving, we can put this thing back together again. Would you help with that? Would you go into the rough places of community where relationships are difficult? And would you not throw it away so quickly would you see the, the tears that are all around us and not run away, but run towards it? Because friends, God is here. God is fixing and God is saving and God is redeeming. And somehow, someday, he will make it better again. Would you join him? Friends, as the story concludes in verse 22, we see that David gave his oath to Saul and Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I want us to see that Saul goes back to the palace that soon wouldn't be his. 
It soon wouldn't be his because he, he saw the soils of faithfulness that God was cultivating in him. He saw it, time and intimacy. He saw serving and, and community marked by vulnerability. He saw it and he rejected it. And so God rejects him. He goes home to a palace that soon wouldn't be his. David and his men go home to a cave that soon wouldn't be his because he's moving to the palace. David cultivates faith in the difficult place of time, of intimacy with God, of serving, and here, community, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, because this is the God that he worships. I invite you to stand up and let's pray to the God that glues us together, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, this is such a hard thing because this represents real people. God, and it's not in a faraway place, in a faraway land. This is here, and this is now, and this is happening this week and even today. Uh, God, I, I ask you to make us a, a kind of people that can live in that disharmony, that can value that brokenness, because it's in that brokenness where you reside and where you become the glue that holds us all together. That God, as, as individuals, we are a broken people. But when we come together, no longer as individuals, but as your church, we are your perfect bride of Christ, not at all because of what we have done, but Lord, because of what you have done and because of who you are in us. Uh, God, we ask this week that you give us the courage to say difficult things that need to be said, that we can find community and restoration and wholeness. That, God, we can participate with you in something so much greater than ourselves. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray all of this. Amen.